I can say that again. We're in Acts 7, 9 through 22. Noel's going to read the text for us. Acts 7, 9 through 22. The patriarchs became jealous of Joseph and sold him into Egypt. Yet God was with him and rescued him from all his afflictions and granted him favor and wisdom in the sight of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he made him governor over Egypt and all his household. Now a famine came over all Egypt and Canaan and great affliction with it, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our fathers there the first time. On the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family was disclosed to Pharaoh. Then Joseph sent word and invited Jacob, his father, and all his relatives to come to him, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down to Egypt, and there he and our fathers died. From there they were removed to Shechem, and laid in the tomb which Abraham had purchased for a sum of money from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. But at the time of the promise was approaching, which God had assured to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose another king over Egypt who knew nothing about Joseph. It was he who took shrewd advantage of our race and mistreated our fathers so that they would expose their infants and they would not survive. It was at this time that Moses was born and he was lovely in the sight of God and he was nurtured three months in his father's home. And after he had been set outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him away and nurtured him as her own. Moses was educated in all the learning of the Egyptians, and he was a man of power in words and deeds. Amen. Now, this may just sound like a recounting history, but Luke and Stephen, through Luke, is teaching us salvation history. And we're going to see that there are themes revealed in Stephen's speech that are found throughout Luke Acts. And I'll give you the big picture right now. In Israel's history, there are people who believed God, like Abraham and Joseph and Moses, and were faithful and believed God's promises and obeyed God. Also, in Israel's history, were those who were unbelievers, the masses of the people who wouldn't listen to God, who built a golden calf, and who didn't recognize their time of visitation, a theme that we're going to have, and it's glorious. I emailed it to Eric a couple weeks ago, or uh, I haven't had a voice, not that I got much now, but I am four weeks ahead studying. I let Eric know this excitement 
about the theme of visitation. Keep that idea in mind. Visitation. God comes on the scene of history to make salvation possible and to keep his promises to the patriarchs, particularly Abraham. And whenever there's a visitation, there's a kairos, Greek word, qualitative time. There's a kairos moment, a crucial time of decision. I can say it that way. Are we going to believe God and obey him and enter in to salvation through his promised Messiah? Or are we going to harden our hearts and reject God's messenger? That is what Stephen is laying out in front of the Jewish Sanhedrin and the leaders. And sadly, what we will find out is that they didn't recognize the day of visitation and rejected God's messenger, and Stephen will become the first martyr. Stephen's speech is central to the narrative of Luke-Acts. It summarizes themes found all the way back to Luke chapter 1. I'll show you that probably next week. And always there's a chance for salvation. Noel, you still got the mic? Read Acts 7, 9, and 10. Acts 7, 9, and 10. The patriarchs became jealous of Joseph and sold him into Egypt. Yet God was with him and rescued him from all his afflictions and granted him favor and wisdom in the sight of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And he made him governor over Egypt and all his household. Amen. Amen. Noel, can I borrow your voice? (laughs) Sure, Bob. Beautiful. Notice they were jealous. In the Bible, jealousy is a bad thing. We need to accept God's provisions, what he's done and who he does it through. If God chooses to work through someone like a crucified Jewish carpenter's son, it's for us to praise God and thank him, not be jealous, not to think we know better than God. Why doesn't God do things our way? Because the ways of man lead to destruction. God does things his way. And rather than be jealous, we need to submit to what God's purpose is, believe him, trust him, and obey him. It says in Acts 5, 17, but the high priest rose up along with all his associates, that is the sect of the Sadducees, and they were filled with jealousy. That God was working through whom he was working through made 
the Jewish leadership jealous. And they wanted to destroy God's messengers. They sold him into Egypt, the patriarchs. What Stephen is going to do with his sermon is to use the Jewish idea of corporate solidarity to indict the Sanhedrin. He's going to say, yes, you are like the patriarchs in their rebellion. You, too, reject God's messenger just like the patriarchs did. But Joseph was the one God used. God was with him. My dear friends, we may not be popular with the world. We may not be popular with church people in a general sense. But if God's with us, we will be blessed. And God will use us to bring the message of salvation to a lost world. And the truth to people who maybe don't want to hear it. And this says, God was with him and rescued him. Thematic. This term rescued here is found also, if you want to jot these down, Acts 7.34, Acts 12.11, and Acts 26.17. It's a synonym with the word we find in Colossians 1.13. This is exareo, it is a synonym of ruamai that's found throughout the Bible. I was just writing about that. My article is going to be on Colossians 1, 13-14. Rescued, transferred, redeemed, forgiven. And I'm writing it so I can link it to everybody who writes me about demons. Help me get rid of the demons. Number one email I get. So I told my daughter, Jessie, I'm going to write a whole article to make it so clear that if you're a Christian, God has rescued you from Satan. Believe it. Rue am I. Brian, why don't you read Psalm 34:19 about being rescued. Psalm 34:19 Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. In the Septuagint the word delivers ruamai rescues. God rescues us. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and delivered him from all his afflictions. I don't have much voice, but I got enough to cry out to God. Thank you, Lord. Rescued him out of his afflictions. That is a term that reminds us of what God has done 
for his faithful servants and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh and made him ruler. So that's the story of Joseph. Favor and wisdom in the Greek is literally grace and wisdom. Grace and wisdom is what characterizes Jesus and his chosen messengers. Brian, another one. Acts 10.38. This is about God being with somebody. You know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. Amen. God rescues his righteous ones, and he grants favor by his divine providence. Evil was done to Jesus, but God was with him. Why, you still got the mic. Quote Acts 3, 14 and 15. That's Peter speaking. But you disowned the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, but put to death the prince of life, the one whom God raised from the dead, a fact to which we are witnesses. Amen. Peter indicted his listeners. Let's go to Acts 7, 11 and 12. Brian, again. Now a famine came over all Egypt and Canaan, and great affliction with it, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our fathers there the first time. Yeah, now there's a term that I brought out in the ESV here, first visit. It should be translated that way, because it's a theme. And we're going to learn about visitation. It's a theme in Luke Acts. And what I found in my research, I love how Logos software helps. You look up a Greek term, and I find out everything about it in both the Septuagint and in the New Testament. The term visit is important. Whenever God visits, it's an important thing. One of the themes we're going to see is that salvation often comes on the second visit. And Israel, who has rejected her Messiah, will be saved on the second visitation. I showed that to Eric the other day. I found that in my research. And a couple of the scholars I read saw it as well. So they rejected Messiah in the first visitation. God uses Joseph. The irony is amazing. What had they done to Joseph? They got rid of him, threw him in a pit. He'd been mistreated by his brothers. 
he was mistreated by Potiphar's wife. He helped these two guys get out of jail. They forgot about him. But God was with him. So now, the ones who rejected Joseph have to go for to him if they want to live. Remember the story? Verse 13. Again, Brian, 13 and 14. On the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family was disclosed to Pharaoh. Then Joseph sent word and invited Jacob, his father, and all his relatives to come to him, 75 persons in all. The second visit, when Joseph revealed who he was, imagine they were quaking in their boots. This guy could kill us. And we mistreated him. But God saved him. This two visits. The second one, salvation comes to the family. I'm not the only one who saw this. I'm going to quote Dr. Paul Hill from the New American Commentary. Quote, What Stephen did emphasize, however was the seemingly insignificant detail that the brothers made two visits and only recognized Joseph on the second. Why this emphasis? The same would be true of Moses later on in Stephen's speech. His fellow Israelites did not recognize him either on his first visit rejected him. Only on his second visit did he recognize him as the one God had sent to deliver them from Egypt. Then he says this, Paul Hill, one is strongly tempted to see here a reference to the two visits of Christ. He's recognized on the second. They will recognize him whom they pierced and mourn for him. Here we have a good premillennial reading of Luke Acts. Now we're going to show you that that was mentioned earlier. Brian, again, Acts 3, 19 through 21. Therefore, repent and return, so that your sins may be wiped away, in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send Jesus, the Christ appointed for you, whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient time. Exactly. I know that people we know and love are a millennialist, but I don't know what they're reading. What does it say? What did Peter preach? Now you can say, well, it was just Peter, but in Luke Acts, Luke gets the message out by quoting reliable witnesses, and nobody could say 
than Luke intended for us to think that here Peter was not a reliable witness. He was. He spoke for God. Any questions or comments? You know, it's interesting here in Luke 3 that you just quoted, Brian, where it says, Repent, therefore, and turn again that your sins may be blotted out, that the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ. And it's this idea where you see human responsibility to repent, therefore God will send. And remember, Bob has taught us this concept of filling up. There's a filling up of evil, and there's only a certain amount that God will tolerate, and he sends his son. Well, here we also see there's a filling up of the elect. And so there's as people repent, the full number of the elect is filled up. We don't know when that day happens. God knows. But there's going to be a day when the last elect trust upon the Lord Jesus Christ, and that's it, and then he returns. And so we see the filling up twice here, two different Amen. ways. Amen. You know, the more I study the Bible, over 45 years now, the more amazing it is. Nobody could have made this up. The Holy Spirit inspired it. The consistency of the message from Genesis to Revelation is astounding. And why wouldn't people not be excited? I heard from an old friend over Christmas who brought her daughter and some cookies. And God bless her, wonderful lady and people we've known for 30 years. But they go to a seeker church. And she had visited back when I was preaching at the other place and thought it was too much Bible. Can't, it's too much. It's too much. Never came back. And she loves the seeker church, but she didn't know what to make of it. They had one pastor at this big seeker church teaching verse by verse through the Bible. And they fired him. We don't want that. Maybe one verse and all this other stuff. Dear friends, if I did that to you, I'd be guilty of pastoral malpractice. You didn't come here to get the cliff notes. You came to get the whole counsel of God. Yeah, I just had a couple. Um, one is that when Eric read that slower again, um, I really like that that uh, in the verse where it says he may send Jesus, you know, evidence for the Trinity. And because in verse 26, again, it says God raised up his servant. So, you know, we have this evidence. The other thing I was thinking, though, is how, you know, I see um, the timeline of God working throughout history. And in the Old Testament, God spoke through his prophets. And then there was that 400 years of silence where he didn't speak. And the people were just dying to hear him. And so they went to mysticism and Kabbalah and different things where they were trying to conjure it up. Well, then Jesus came, he rose. And now what we have is the word, but it's not enough for people. So we're doing the same thing. We're going back to mysticism. and Jesus calling. Yes, yes. So it's just the same. It's repetitive. You know what? In this article I'm writing, I'm talking about the Deuteronomy 32.8 worldview. God divided up the nations according to the sons of God, but Yahweh would rule over Israel. The sons of God included evil beings in the divine council. I proved that in my article. 
I preached on this before some years ago. By the time Stephen preaches, it was Ichabod. Think about it. When those Roman soldiers destroyed the temple and tore down stone upon stone, as predicted by Jesus, why, when they went into the holy place, didn't they die? Ichabod, the glories departed. By the time of Stephen, Israel was under the stoichia, hostile powers, just as much as all the other nations. And God, at this time, the only way to escape is through the gospel. The temple of the Holy Spirit, where God dwells and rules, is in the believer, singular, and in the church, plural, but not in a geopolitical entity. I'm writing an article about all this. So if you want to be under the rule of God, repent and believe the gospel. And that's what Stephen was preaching, and they killed him. They'd rather be under Satan. But one day, Messiah will come for his second visit. Hallelujah. So, Luan, uh, 400 years were just a sign of Ichabod. There was no prophet. And they knew it. But they went to mysticism. Okay, now, who has the mic? Go ahead. Acts 7, 15 and 16. And Jacob went down to Egypt, and there he and our fathers died. From there they were removed to Shechem and laid in the tomb which Abraham had purchased for a sum of money from the sons of Hamor and Shechem. Yes. Now, uh, as he recounts here this history, there's a condensing, because we know it's a little more elaborate than that. Shechem wasn't the only place. But this doesn't offend me. This excites me. Some people are offended. Luke has a narrative reason for how this is said, how he recounts Stephen's speech. Okay? And here's the reason. Shechem is part of the land where the gospel is going to go in Acts 8 to the Samaritans. So there's a foreshadow. Something good is in Shechem. That's where the gospel's going. It's what an interesting reading. I think there's some merit to it. Again, quoting Dr. Polhill, the Joseph section of Stephen's speech ends with a reverence to the descent of Jacob's clan into Egypt and the burial of the patriarchs in Shechem. The reference to the burial of Shechem is that some variance with the Old Testament accounts which give Hebron as the burial place for Jacob. 
check on Pat Superior, please, or Joseph. I think he's merely condensing the material to show that God's going to work and check him. If you want to be offended, I can't help that. This is just what it says. 17 and 18. But as the time of the promise was approaching, which God had assured to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose another king over Egypt who knew nothing about Joseph. Okay, Stephen continues recounting the history of Israel. You might say, why is Stephen doing that? This is the ruling party. They know all these things precisely. They do know these things, and Stephen's going to use it to indict them. We don't have time, but if you want, jot this down. Psalm 78. It's a long psalm. In Psalm 78, the psalmist recites the history of Israel to indict Israel. This is Jewish preaching. God did this, 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 and then you, oh, and then you rebelled. That's bad. It's like a prosecutor in law. They, they set up and put all their evidence out there and then come in with the indictment. Good comment. Very much so. That's what Stephen is doing. Luke gave Stephen a lot of space, didn't he? A lot of verses. Central. So now we're reminded of Abraham. God had promised Abraham that his descendants or his seed would be in this land for 400 years. And afterwards, they would come out. Now, I point out that there's repetitive phrases in Luke-Acts to get our attention. Increasing and multiplying is the same word used for the church. Acts 6-7, who can read that? Go ahead, if you got it. The word of God kept on spreading, and the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. But the word of the Lord continued to grow and to be multiplied. So increasing and multiplied is a repeated phrase, and it's a good thing. God was causing Israel to increase and multiply. Because he was making the descendants of Abraham into a covenant nation. Because of the promise, the seed promise, that goes all the way back to Genesis 3, 15. Eric has preached on that lately. Go ahead, reader, Acts 7, 19 and 20. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight, and he was brought up for three months in his father's house. 
Amen. They were shrewd. They saw danger, the Egyptians. God was prospering the slaves, causing the sons of Israel to multiply and increase. And they were building the cities of Pharaoh. And he became alarmed. But God keeps his word. And so they were ordered to kill these babies. And again, that same thing happened when Christ was born. They went after the youth, the the, the two and under. Exactly. The roots of prophecy are in biblical history. The themes repeat from Genesis to Revelation. But no matter who it was, Pharaoh or Herod, nobody can stop God's purposes because God does what he says he will do. So they cunningly exploited the people. Moses is going to be a key figure in Stephen's address. We got a little time. Let's read it. Go ahead, read, or go to uh, Exodus 1, 8 through 22. It never hurts to rehearse the Bible in our minds. Exodus what, 8? Exodus 1, oh. 8 to 22. It's on my slide. Okay. Now a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. He said to his people, Behold, the people of the sons of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come, let us deal wisely with them, or else they will multiply, and in the event of war they will also join themselves to those who hate us and fight against us and depart from the land. So they appointed a taskmasters over them to afflict them with hard labor, and they built for Pharaoh storage cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and the more they spread out so that they were in dread of the sons of Israel. The Egyptians compelled the sons of Israel to labor rigorously, and they made their lives bitter with hard labor and mortar and bricks and at all kinds of labor in the field, all their labors which they rigorously imposed on them. Then the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrews' midwives, one of whom was named Shifra, and the other was named Puah. And they said, when you are helping the Hebrew women to give birth and see them upon the birth stool, if it is a son, then you shall put him to death. But if it is a daughter, then she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt had commanded them, but let the but let the boys live. So the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said to them, why have you done this thing and let the boys live? Right, so there was an attack against the babies. Now, in Moses' case, he was put in after three months. We're going to see that here, three months. He was put in an ark of bulrushes, another type. Salvation found in the ark and put out to flow down the Nile and die. Who found him? Pharaoh's daughter, right? R.C. Sproul had a... a tape or something or writing on this called the shout heard around the world or the cry 
It was about providence. Yeah, it was about providence. The cry heard around the world. Now, it doesn't say he cried, but she heard him or saw him out there. See, people think that if we believe in the doctrine of providence, we're weak. We're just not wanting to hear from God. They think you have to get secret revelations directly from God so things will work out. So they seek revelators, prophets, shamans, anything, mystics, because they don't trust God. And they think if all we have is what God said in the Bible, we don't have enough. What they don't realize is that God has given us everything that pertains to life and godliness. And province isn't some weak doctrine. It's a powerful doctrine. It tells us that God gets us to the right place at the right time in spite of us. No prophet was there saying, oh, put him in an ark. Thus saith the Lord. No, they just thought, well, we got to do something. I thank God for this. I couldn't bear what's going on with me if it wasn't for providence. I don't know why I don't have a better voice. But I told told my wife, if I'm only going to have an hour of speaking a week, this is it. So I'm going to do... She said, good. (laughs) I think it was pretty. (laughs) She probably, he said, lucky Diane. No, I do talk to her. (laughs) Anyhow, God's providence is a good thing. He loves us. He cares for us. He looks over us. He protects us. He gets us where we need to go. It's our job to obey God's moral law. He takes care of us. Notice it says, at this time. Time. Two words for time, at least, in the Greek. Kronos and kairos. Kronos denotes chronological time. The ticking of the clock. And our way of looking at it. Kairos means crucial moment. At exactly the right time for God to fulfill his promises. Mindful of Abraham. And the promise, Moses came on the scene of history. Likewise, at the crucial moment, Messiah was born in Bethlehem. God keeps his word. Acts 7, 21 and 22. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as their own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. Here we have another 
set of analogies that will remind us of what God's been doing in Luke-Acts. So Pharaoh's daughter adopted him. Listen, Sproul was right about something. His book is called The Invisible Hand. I still recommend it. I've had it for 20 years. He was right about something. The birth of Moses and his salvation from death and denial and his being raised in the household of Pharaoh is an event that has influenced world history to this very day. The entire history of the human race would be totally different if there were no no Moses. This, my friends, is the birth of Western civilization. There's a monotheistic God who gives law and reveals himself to man. And he chose to do so through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and of course here, Moses. At a crucial time, Moses was saved from the, from the uh, Nile. Let's read some of it. Uh, Exodus 2, 3, and 4. Go ahead. Just keep reading if you want, Brian. What was it? Exodus 2, 3, and 4. But when she could hide him no longer, she got him a wicker basket and covered it over with tar and pitch. Then she put the child into it and set it among the reeds by the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to find out what would happen to him. What happened? He was saved by Pharaoh's daughter. This is commented on, by the way, in Hebrews 11. We'll look at that probably next week. Exodus 4 and verse 10. Then Moses said to the Lord, Please, Lord, I have never been eloquent, neither recently nor in time past, nor since you have spoken to your servant, for I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, for all of that, he didn't do bad. Or badly, I should say. Let me read Luke 2.52. And Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. You see echoes of Moses, mighty in word and deed. Who else was? Look at Luke 24, 19. Luke 24, 19, I'll read it. Wrote to Emmaus. And he said to them, what things? Jesus did that is. Jesus said that. And they said to him the things about Jesus the Nazarene, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word in the sight of God and all the people. Notice mighty in deed and words. Moses said he wasn't eloquent. God says he was mighty in deeds and words. God will use us the way we are. The words are powerful because they're the words of God. They said about Paul, 
His speech is contemptible. He didn't look so great either. I'd say God used him. I'm going to quote one more verse here. Acts 2.22. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst just as you yourselves know. Last week we looked at evidence for the resurrection of Christ. And though on a video I challenged the listeners, are you going to come to Christ in faith or are you going to lie and act like it never happened? All of the evidence points to the validity of the testimony about Jesus Christ. So Moses also was a man mighty in words and deeds. Moses spoke for God under the old covenant. But Moses in Deuteronomy 18 predicted that God will raise up another prophet like Moses. And when he does, listen to him. And on the Mount of Transfiguration, that person was revealed by a voice from heaven to be Jesus Christ. So for us today, who are studying these words of life from the Bible, are we going to listen to him? I was heartbroken to hear that a faithful pastor was fired for teaching verse by verse through the Bible. We live in a world where even the so, so-called evangelicals refuse to listen to the words of God. They'd rather have their ears tickled. We went through a lot of scripture, and I don't have much voice. But it isn't my voice that's powerful. It's the words of God. And we can learn from this. Next week, we're going to see about this visitation. We're going to get deeper into the narrative about Moses. In Luke 7, Stephen's speech, Moses' life, is divided into three 40-year segments. And we'll learn from that. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you for caring about us. Thank you for your providence that brought us to this place that you say your son, Jesus, mighty in word and deed, who brought us salvation. May we be people who believe and obey our dear Lord. Give us grace to do so. Pray for Eric that you bless him as he preaches to us. Thank you, dear Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless.